I'm Michael Foster, and you're listening to a special episode of We Made People. Occasionally, we will drop bonus episodes. Bonus episodes come from things like sermon series that I'm doing at my church, or Q&As that Emily and I do on Twitter Spaces. The main focus of season one of We Made People is framed around each of the kids God has blessed us with. Bonus episodes don't tell that story, but they do expand on many of the ideas that come up in each of those episodes. For example, what I'm sharing with you this week is four sermons that I've preached at East River Church that cover topics related to family, parenting, and children. I think these episodes will be helpful as you consider building your first-generation Christian household. Good morning. My name is Michael. I'm a pastor here. Glad to have you with us today. See some new faces. Um, I'll say this quickly, and then we'll get right to the sermon. So many of you know that my mother passed away Thursday morning. Uh, so we don't have the uh, funeral arrangement set up yet. But as soon as we do, we'll let you all know. Right now, it looks like a week from this Monday, uh, just so relatives can get in town. You guys are sweet. You guys have been very encouraging. Thank you for your support, your love, all that stuff. Appreciate it. I think you can help us out by just each one of you taking one chicken home from my from my farm. You do whatever you want with it. So I would recommend ending its life. I have changed the text. It's uh, Proverbs 14.4. Proverbs 14.4. We're in a short topical series through parenting and children. So we've talked about the fruit of the womb. We've talked about the rod of discipline. We've talked about the work of fatherhood. And today, providentially, we land on the labor of motherhood. So Proverbs 14.4, single verse, it says, Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your superintending of all things, that all things work out to good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Help us to believe this and live it every day with confidence that you will bring us to that finish line, that your spirit is in us, strengthening us, and making us ready for salvation. In your son's name, amen. Amen. The first woman who uh, ever existed played a central role in plunging mankind into an estate of sin and misery. When we think of the word estate, we think of it in a legal sense. Now that my mother's passed away, I'm the executor of her estate, meaning all that she once owed, now I'm in charge of that. But that's not the sort of estate I'm talking about here. By estate, I mean a fixed condition. In Luke 148, uh, we hear Mary sing, for he has looked on the humble estate of his serv- servant. For behold, for now on, all generations will call me blessed. So social and economic mobility is more of a modern Western thing. In most times and places, uh, if you were born poor, you die poor. Whatever estate you are born into is the estate in which you remain. Mary was of a humble estate, poor, unlearned, insignificant. And yet God made her name great. I want to bring up the older meaning of estate because it's repeatedly used in old theological and helpful documents like the Shorter Catechism. So a catechism is a series of questions and answers used to teach basic Bible facts. 
And here's a few of the questions from the Shorter Catechism, which is the one that we use in my family and I recommend. Uh, Question 12, what special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the estate wherein he was created? The answer, when God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. And question 13, did our first parents continue in the estate wherein they were created? Answer, our first parents being left to the freedom of their own will fell from the estate wherein they were created by sinning against God. Skipping to question 15, what was the sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created? The sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created was their eating the forbidden fruit. Question 17, into what estate did the fall bring mankind? The fall brought mankind into an estate or a fixed condition of sin and misery. Question 18, wherein consists consists the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell? The sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. Question 19. What is the misery of that estate whereinto man fell? All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. And finally, question 20, did God leave all mankind to perish in this estate of sin and misery? God, having, out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. Hallelujah. Amen, right? Now, our church has foundational commitments which guide how we do things. There's eight of them. The fourth one is we are committed to being accessible to everyday Christians. So we try hard not to use old language or overly technical theological terms. We want to be accessible. We want those sitting in the pews to be able to follow along with and understand what is being said from the pulpit. But we live in a day where our education has been dreadfully pathetic. Uh, Most of us uh, have the attention span of a gnat or perhaps a squirrel, right? Very hard for people to pay attention nowadays. So we can't let our goal to be uh, a goal of being accessible to descend into catering to the lowest common denominator. Can't do that. We're not here to dumb down the truth, but to lift up the people so they can take a hold of it, right? That's our goal. And you can help us do that by teaching your children the truth of the Bible, And the catechism is a helpful tool to do that. Many of the greatest theological minds learn the foundational doctrines of Scripture from their mother's use of the catechism. Mom made sure they knew what the word estate meant and what it meant to fall into an estate of sin and misery and how they can be brought to an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. Which brings me back to the fact that the first woman to ever exist played a central role in plunging mankind into an estate of sin and misery. The serpent deceived the woman. She took the fruit, ate it, and gave it to her husband. He abdicated his role as leader and knowingly followed her into rebellion. 
This resulted into what we refer to as the curse, which is found in Genesis chapter 3. God curses the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first promise of the gospel. God wasn't done with mankind. Savior, a redeemer, would come from the woman. Her seed, that is her child, would destroy the serpent. Just as a woman, the first woman, played a central role in the fall of mankind, so too she plays a central role in the redemption of all mankind. And she did this by becoming a mother. It's important that the woman did not receive her name from Adam until after both the pain of the curse and the promise of the gospel was pronounced by God. In Genesis 3.20, it says, The man called his wife's name Eve. Up to this point, she's just been called the woman. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve sounds like the Hebrew for life giver. It resembles the word living. Adam named his wife Eve because he believed he had faith that God would keep his promise and deliver them and their children from death unto life through the labor of Eve, through the labor of motherhood. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul reminds us, even though woman was made for man, all men now are born of woman. And that includes the God-man, Jesus Christ. This fact dignifies the work of motherhood in a special way. Mothers are life-givers. It's through their literal labors all of mankind is brought into this world. And it was through the labors of Mary a woman of low estate, that the life-giving Redeemer was born. And it is by him we are gifted with eternal life. To think little of motherhood is unnatural. Without it, the thinker would not even exist to have a thought. The actor Jack Nicholson, who is no bastion of moral virtue or even logical consistency, once was quoted saying, I am pro-choice, but against abortion because I'm an illegitimate child myself, and it would be hypocritical to take any other position. I'd be dead. I wouldn't exist. And I'd have nothing, and I have nothing, but total admiration, gratitude, and respect for the strength of the woman who made the decision she made in my individual case. All who live, all who have enjoyed any moment of life ought to honor motherhood. They should be full of gratitude towards the one who brought them into the world. That's a gift that no one else can give you. Again, this is especially true for the Christian who understands the importance of, that motherhood plays in the plan of redemption. Motherhood has a cosmic significance, right? But that starts down here on earth with tiny acts of care and nurturing. In 2 Timothy 1, Paul writes to his dear protege, Timothy, and Timothy was like an adopted son to him. And he was wanting to encourage him in a hard church situation. And he says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. And I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice. And now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Now, Timothy was of mixed descent. His father was apparently a non-believing Greek. But his mother, she believed. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
It was Timothy's mother who taught him the scriptures. It was her little lessons around the dinner table or bedside that prepared him for salvation and ministry. As I said last week, the Christian discipleship and education of children is the responsibility of the father. He must make sure it gets done. He leads the way, but that doesn't mean that it's his sole duty. God gave Adam the woman as a helper. The work of dominion, the work of household building, the work of raising up godly children is a work that requires both a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. Just as children need the presence of the strength and authority of godly masculine men, fathers, so do they need the presence of the cherishing nurture of a godly feminine mother. They work hand in hand. Listen to Proverbs. Proverbs 1.8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Same thing. Chapter 6, verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandments, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Let's not forget that Proverbs 31 was a lesson that originated from the king's mother. Listen to verse 1 through 3. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women or your ways to those who destroy kings. The queen mother, she was a powerful woman. And she chiefly exercised uh, that power by raising up the next generation of kings and queens. In the 1800s, William Ross Wallace wrote a famous poem that includes these lines. Woman, how divine your mission. Here upon natal sod, keep, oh, keep the young heart open, always to the breath of God. All true trophies of the ages are from mother love impearled. From the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Blessing on the hand of women, fathers, sons, and daughters cry. And the sacred song is mingled with the worship in the sky. Mingles where no tempest darkens, rainbows evermore are hurled. For the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Amen. Whatever men and women will be, they will be in part because of the faithful work of their mother. That faithful labor is often accomplished through seemingly little deeds, insignificant deeds. For example, children first learn generosity, justice, and equity and how they play with others. Kids kind of suck sometimes, right? Right? They have to be corrected, and they, like, pick up their toys and hit each other in the face for no, like, exact reason. And mom has to teach them. Can't do that. A mother is there to make sure that they learn. Uh, she teaches them that there is, they need to be willing to share their toys with others, right? That's the lesson that our socialist friends love, right? But also... Uh, she teaches them that they can't take toys that don't belong to them. They don't like that lesson as much. These little lessons are the seeds that will grow into a moral backbone that won't be corrupted by riches or bought by bribes. How many corrupt politicians had good mothers? Maybe some of them did, and they shame her. But I bet more than a few were indulged by their mothers and deprived of such lessons. Mothers don't only teach lessons, they also create a nurturing atmosphere. Men build houses, women make homes. A house is just a building, right? When you walk through a house, you have to imagine what it could be. It has the potential to become a home. Making a home is about so much more than just keeping all the rooms clean and tidy, 
However, that is part of it. Making a home is about creating a place of warmth, safety, and refreshment. It's a place of training and hospitality. It's a place where memories are formed and traditions are passed down from generation to generation. It's an oasis in a desert world. There's no place like home because there's no other place that was crafted by your dad and mom to solely nurture and educate you. Part of the work of motherhood is transforming a house into a home. In Titus 2, Paul teaches the older women, encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. This is a work that needs a lot of encouragement. It's hard work. Workers at home is sometimes translated keepers of the home or homemakers. Ladies, it's your special role to be homemakers. Home is where the heart is because that's where we are first loved and cherished by mom. She holds us close. She kisses our ouchies and boo-boos or whatever you call them. Uh, She makes us our favorite meals. She sings us to sleep. She introduces us to all sorts of amazing worlds as she tells us stories. Now, this isn't the attitude most people have about homemaking, is it? This comes across loud and clear in Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. She writes, as she made the beds, shopped for groceries, matched slip cover material, ate peanut butter sandwiches with her children, chauffeured Cub Scouts and brownies, lay beside her husband at night, she was afraid to ask even herself the silent question, is this all? And finally, there is that problem that has no name, a vague, undefined wish for something more than washing dishes, ironing, punishing and praising the children. First off, it has a name. It's called feminism, and it's poison from hell. That's what that is. Friedan, like many women of her time, felt she was imprisoned in the home. Hence, she wrote extensively of the so-called trapped housewife syndrome of the 50s. Uh, She saw the work of the household as insignificant and a source of drudgery. And she believed that careerism was the way women could escape it. Remember, feminism hates femininity. It defines women's value in terms of masculinity and their ability to compete with women. If you don't know that, you just haven't read it, right? Just read the books. I can give you a long list. They're They're not secret about it. Now, this is a lie. But there's a reason women feel this way. First, the nature of the household has changed. Uh, the modern world gutted the household of all its productivity. Listen to uh, Are Women Human by Dorothy Sayers. And Dorothy Sayers is a favorite writer of mine. She was kind of on the forefront of class, like the rediscovering of classical Christian education. It's a formal list of jobs, the whole of the spinning industry, the whole of the dyeing industry, the whole of the weaving industry the whole catering industry and, which would not please Lady Astor, perhaps the whole of the nation's brewing and distilling, all the preserving, pickling, and bottling industry, all the bacon curing. And since in those days a man was often absent from home for months together on war or business, a very large share in the management of landed estates. Here are the women's jobs and what has become of them. They're being handled by men. Is a very, it is all very well to say that women's place is in the home. 
But modern civilization has taken all the pleasant and profitable activities out of the home where the woman looked after them and handed them over to big industry to be directed and organized by men at the head of large factories. Even the dairymaid in her simple bonnet has gone to be replaced by male mechanic in, a male mechanic in charge of mechanical milking plants. It's true. It's true. The home used to be where you're educated. Home used to be where contracts were negotiated. The home was on the backside of the, of the Smithy's shop, right? Home is where things happen, big things. Homes were little businesses. There are places of productivity that both the men and women work together. You know, one reason adultery and divorce exploded is because of the advent of what they called work wives. So up until about, right before World War II, you're at about 15% of um, integrated workforce, right? So only about 15% of women worked in what we would, uh, outside of the home. During World War II, for obvious reasons, it shoots up to like 40-ish percent, then it drops down to 35%, and then it just, now it's a fully integrated workforce. It worked its way up about 5 to 10% every decade. And um, in 90, like 90% of affairs happen at work. That's where they start. Now, Why? Because when you work together, you develop intimacy, and men and women were supposed to work together with the people they love. Like the home is where those tight bonds are crafted. And what's left for women today? What's left for them in their homes? We've made them into a shell. They're not homes. They're just a house, right? You, a place to like not entertain others, to entertain yourself, watching Netflix. There's not big dining rooms anymore. They're little, right? Because everyone goes out and eats. Even our architecture has been reshaped around just um, small families, atomistic living. Betty Friedan, she's, she's a terrible woman. You know, she complained about washing dishes. And I read an interview uh, with her husband, or no, where her husband was quoted back to her. And he said, she complained about washing dishes. Betty never washed uh, a dish in her life. And she laughed and said, that's probably true, okay? This woman's a liar, okay? She just, uh, like, like the people today, they know bitterness sells. You can monetize bitterness. But she had a point. She had a point. Homes aren't what they used to be. We have to recover that, right? Homes are a place of education, discipleship, productivity. We can take little steps towards that. Now, there's a second reason that women struggle with this. And that's because the labor of motherhood is cursed. Way back in Genesis 3, we already talked about it. God says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In the story of sex in scripture, William Mauser, and I love, Bill was a friend of mine. He just died a couple weeks ago. But his books on sexuality that him and his wife Barbara wrote are very helpful I think they're very ironic, and he doesn't pull his punches, but it's also not shock jock nonsense, okay? Highly recommend them. He writes in us the story of sex in Scripture, in addition to the sentence of death, God curses the work of man and woman. That is the productivity of their specific domains. Since Adam comes from the ground to work the ground, God curses the ground. It'll be unproductive. Labor will be hard. His own body will sweat as he struggles to make a living from a rebellious earth, even as he journeys towards death to return to the dust from which he was made. Woman is not made directly from the earth or for the earth. She is made from the man and for the man for people. 
The curse affects her relationship in the family. First, her unique and central area of productivity, childbearing, is cursed with all sorts of pain and difficulty. Second, her created ability and desire to help her husband is cursed with a contradictory desire to rule him rather than to help him. So by nature, each sex is driven to be fruitful in a way particular to their own unique design. But to pursue that productivity always comes with the sting of the curse. Men want to cultivate a field, but that requires a hard work of overcoming thorns. Women want to cultivate a family, but that requires submission to a man and the pain of bearing children. And I don't mean the pain of bearing children only in labor. Certainly that's real. But just the difficulty of raising these kids up, you give them your hearts. There is a redemptive purpose to the curse. It functions as an abiding chastisement to lead us to repentance. As we struggle to do what we're made to do, we are reminded that we live in a creation desperately in need of redemption. Right? This, why is it so hard to live out your nature? Because nature is cursed and messed up. That's why. That, this is why in 1 Timothy 2.15, a verse that flummoxed, or like confuses people, it's pretty obvious, I think, once you read it in the context of Scripture, Paul says, but women will be preserved or saved through bearing the bearing of children if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. Right? He's talking about sanctification. The work of motherhood is a sanctifying force that makes you depend on God. Ladies, can I get an amen? <laughs> okay, good. Uh, the labor of motherhood, it'll make you bleed. It'll make you cry. It's a messy work, which is why I chose Proverbs 14.4 as the text. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. You can have an always neat and tidy manger. You can. But if you turn the manger into a museum, you'll do so at the cost of the strength of the ox. That is the price you must pay for productivity. It's got to be fed and kept safe. And this requires a manger, and what goes in must come out. Hence, the productivity of an ox results in dung. The productivity of a womb and home results in dirty diapers and dishes, but also results in children who grow up into God-fearing adults. Mothers, your little deeds add up. They matter. Let me give you an example. Julie Smith is not here. It's probably best for her. Julie lives down the west side. She lives pretty far away. Um, and God put it in her heart a couple weeks ago that one way or another, she was going to get my mother to church. So she wakes up early, earlier than usual, gets her two teenage sons into the car. Sometimes that can be difficult, almost as difficult as getting toddlers. It just depends on how much hair they have. But uh, So she decides to get them in there. Drives all the way over to Milford. Then has con- worked with my mom and contacted the nursing home, and they have her ready to get her dressed. Uh, I love my mom. There was some girth going on there towards the end. Getting her in and out of a car is hard work, right? Also, things weren't working, so there's a bag of urine, right? That's really gross. Moms deal with really gross stuff a lot of times, right? So she gets my mom into the car and then drives to church. Gets her out of the car, gets her in here. And now uh, my mom, has a, she hasn't been out of the hospital or out of the nursing home for months, for months. And now she's able to come back to church and see you guys, right? 
smiling, able to talk, moving some, you know, moving around more. And she's able to uh, sing praises, hear me preach again, which is special to her because I'm her son. And she's able to take communion again, right? And, uh, and she, you know, gets to talk to you guys and have fellowship. She's happy. It's, it's victory. She goes home, right? And then, then Thursday, her heart gives out and she dies. Is Julie, is Julia Uber driver? Is that what she is? She's like a cabbie or something? Just a cabbie. Just taking a woman from A to B. That's what feminists would have you believe. Oh, I don't want to just cook meals and clean dishes. You don't cook meals, you small-minded fool. You facilitate hospitality. You make memories. You knit people together. What a small view we have. Everyone that tries to do great things ends up mattering so little. They don't matter in so little. These little deeds, these little decisions that you make, God works through them. No, she wasn't a... She was a send-off party. You know? She prepared my mom for heaven. That's the work of a mother. It's little decisions, little labors, Little deeds, done in faith, often covered in dirt and slime and other things. Things that seem insignificant, that don't matter in the moment. But 20 years later, they do. And sometimes, four days later, they do. The devil wants you to believe that motherhood's insignificant. And that's because through women come life. Through women come the future. The next generation of the church triumphant, the church militant. Of course he hates motherhood. And these women that hate motherhood, they're not intellectuals. They're just bitter. They're just bitter. Don't lose heart. Everyone wants a long list of things to do. Teach your kids the Bible. Pray with them. You know, Emily has a stupid tradition of the Christmas pickle. Some of you guys might not even do Christmas. Does anyone do Christmas pickles? What is wrong with you people? <laughs> so you like you, you hide a, a little wooden pickle on the tree. And whoever finds it first, um, whoever fights over it the whole time is what I see, but you know, like dads on Christmas, we've got our trash bag, we're ready, right? You know what it's all about. But they, whoever finds the Christmas pickle gets to open the first gift, right? Well, to me, that seems silly. But now, you know, 17 Christmases in, and a lot of funny memories, it doesn't seem as silly as it once did. Women, you make culture. You cultivate memories. You cultivate tradition. I have fired so many people. I have hired and fired so many people in corporate America. Let me just tell you right now. This is true both men and women. 
They don't care about you. I mean, they kind of do. But then you just got to, I got, you got to replace you. <laughs> this goes on, right? You can spend your whole life working for the patriarchy. That is what corporate America is. Like 95% of the board men are men. The CEOs are men. The upper management are men. Now you can work for that patriarchy if you want, this emaciated household that pretends to be your family. People I say at work, we're family. Mm, mm. Are we really though? Right? Um, yeah, you're replaceable. But no one can ever replace a mother. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the uh, gift of mothers. We thank you for the faithful women that feared you and raised up the saints and the apostles. We thank you special, especially for Mary. She bore your son and raised him up. God, we thank you for our mothers, even the ones who maybe didn't fear you and were manipulative and had all sorts of problems, but they did give us life. But we especially thank you for those mothers that taught us the word of God and called us to fear you and love you. I pray that you would encourage the mothers here right now in the thick of the work with little ones to not see these little deeds as meaningless, but knowing that they're contributing to a greater good that you'll work through. And I especially pray for the mothers who their children are out of their home and maybe have gone away from their lessons and their instruction and are apostate or wayward God. I pray that you would remind them of Augustine's mother, Monica, who would never stop praying for him. And through her prayers, you were pleased to call him back to yourself, God. So help these women in their labor. Help us to dignify motherhood. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.